Hello, and welcome to HLAW's Legal History Podcast. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today we will be discussing University Court Enslaved, Pro-Slavery Thought in Southern Colleges and Courts, and the Coming of the Civil War, with my professor and mentor, UNC School of Law Judge John J. Parker, Distinguished Professor of Law, Alfred L. Brophy. Professor Brophy, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. Really happy to be with you. Looking forward to um, talking about pro-slavery thought, and um, thanks a ton for the kind kind words. You, uh, As anybody who knows you knows, you, you were mentoring everybody else. None of us were mentoring you. You were mentoring us, but um, looking forward to chatting. Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became attracted to studying legal history? Yeah, sure thing. So um, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, and, and um, so I think of myself as, as a Philly boy, and uh, I went to college there, and then then went to law school in New York and, and worked for a few years, um, and then um, went, went to graduate school, and so I have both training in, in history and, and law, and uh, here in Chapel Hill, I teach property and trust and estates, and occasionally legal history and other things as the dean's office needs them. It's an interesting sort of question of how I, I, I got interested in legal history. I, was, I, I think my first exposure to it was I, I took a course in, when I was a, a first year in college on modern American history. Um, and I was sort of looking around at, you know, sort of sociology, political science, history. I was interested in, in those sorts of general areas. And um, we read Gerald Auerbach's um, Unequal Justice, which is about a, a book about um, uh, lawyers and social change in the early part of the 20th century. I thought this is super interesting to sort of see how um, uh, lawyers had an effect on um, the administration of justice. And then sort of things went from there. Early on, I was deeply interested in sort of quantitative methods of um, historical analysis. And then when I got to law school, I think that was when I became deeply interested in sort of intellectual history, right? The sort of looking at, at, at cases as a way of understanding what judges um, were at least explaining as, as the basis for their decisions. So I'm, I'm interested in and, and, and try and combine both quantitative approaches as well as sort of more qualitative um, approaches in intellectual history. Yeah, that's that's sort of the, the short version of how I got into interest in this piece of the profession. Would you please tell us how you came to write your current work, University, Court, and Slave? There's a long history to that. Um, it is both a short history and a long history to that. So the the... Sort of longer history is um, when I was in law school, I was looking around for um, a topic for a note, and uh, Eben Moglen, who is my legal history teacher, phenomenal, phenomenal um, teacher and scholar, suggested that I do some something on um, the Tawny Court in the years leading into Civil War, and um, there's sort of kept working on that is you know if, you, if you're looking for areas in which um you see a lot of legal change in a fairly short compass southern law in the years leading to civil war is a great place to look 
And so, you know, particularly if you're looking for a laboratory where you can see how cultural ideas shift, become much more pro-slavery um, over time, for instance, and how that cultural shift matches up against legal change, the South in the years leading to Civil War is a great place to do it. And in that regard, I was quite lucky because there's a ton of other people who, for one reason or another, had the same, you know, sort of interest about the same time I did. So there's, I've seen just a huge amount of change and expansion in the quality and depth of scholarship over the time since I graduated from law school in 1990 to, to today. That's the sort of long, long version of this. And so, you know, when I was in grad school, I was looking around. I thought I was going to do something sort of quantitative um, for one reason or another. Um, I, I, I shifted focus. In part, I was had this dramatically increasing interest in literary um, approaches to law um, and um, so my, my dissertation ended up being on ideas about property and slavery in the South in the years leading into Civil War. So that's in some ways the, the you know, uh, the longer version of, of the history of the book. Um, I, I can remember when I turned my dissertation and one of my advisors said something like, you know, just convert this into a book right away. You don't want to spend 10 years on this. And I was like, well, you mean you don't want me to spend 10 more years? Cause I've already, I'm already past the 10 year mark. But exaggerate a little bit. Anyway. Um, so, so the book is in some ways very much grounded in, you know, work that I did for my dissertation about how Southern lawyers and judges spoke about property and spoke about slavery and how they saw those two intertwined, sort of the basis of Southern law and economy and culture. And that then led into, um, you know, the helps us, uh, is the key maybe to understanding the changes, changes in Southern common law over this time. But also in 2004, when I was at the University of Alabama, I started working much more intensely on universities and, and slavery. And this was a moment where, you know, other places, Yale had done some work on this. Um, Brown was in the early stages of what became their fabulous report on um, slavery and justice. And so I started building out the um, piece of this puzzle that deals with Southern ac- academics. And so, you know, the, the book ends up being sort of a, a welding together of Southern academics writings, largely supporting slavery, but in a, there's an occasional anti-slavery person who wanders across the manuscript. And how we can use that to understand the world of Southern judges. Um, and so I put the sort of Southern academics together with Southern judges and lawyers to try and, uh, you know, create a comprehensive is too big a word but, you know, um, well-developed picture of the ways that property and slavery went together and were justified and how that helps us understand the coming of civil war. Could you talk about the way Nat Turner's rebellion set off a debate among Virginia's leaders about the future of slavery? Yeah, I'd love to. So... A lot of people who write about pro-slavery thoughts see the Nat Turner Rebellion as a key turning point. There's 
in part, it's the timing of the rebellion is situated at a moment when anti-slavery ideas are dramatically increasing. So some of this is not, you know, Turner sets in motion. It's just Turner is a, a, a sort of a guidepost to other changes that are going on. And there's a lot of writing that suggests, you know, Southern society was zealously pro-slavery before Turner. Um, my sense of this is that the pro-slavery um, factions become energized and more vocal um, and more empowered, to use a, a contemporary term, in the wake of the Turner Rebellion um, and some other things like 1835 when anti-slavery um, advocates use the U.S. mails to distribute anti-slavery literature and they begin to petition much more vociferously um, in Congress for the abolition of slavery. And there's uh, lots of other things, sort of, you know, changes in the economy that make it um, much harder for Southerners to see how they can um, terminate slavery. So the, it's a, all a, a whole constellation of events and ideas are coming together right around this time. But I use Turner to set in motion um, the, the whole book. So, you know, it's this rebellion that begins. It's very short-lived. It's day and a half, two days, basically. Um that is in Southampton, Virginia, in a rural part. It's not easy to get to even today. It's sort of west of um, of, of Norfolk. And Nat Turner and a small group of other um, enslaved people, men, start a rebellion. They end up killing, you know, 50-plus um white people, slave owners, and families of slave slave owners, um, family members of slave owners, a lot of women and children. It's an incredibly bloody and uh, tragic affair. And then uh, thence follows um, an awful lot of violence to put down the rebellion and dozens of trials in Southampton in the wake of this in which a lot of people are executed and some people are tra- ordered, transported out of the state and a few people are found not guilty. And these trials sort of spread elsewhere. There's a few of them in in, um, in, in North Carolina in sort of the same basin um, region. Um, and uh, there's some is as far north as Fredericksburg and, and some, anyway. The, um, so this sets off real thinking within Virginia and more broadly about what should be done about the institution of slavery. Some anti-slavery Virginians petitioning the Virginia legislature say, hey, we need to, we need to terminate slavery. Um, and then you've also got an awful lot of people who are like, no, no, the problem is not that there are these rebellious enslaved people here, uh, in, a, in our midst. The problem is that the slave owners are not tough enough on the enslaved. And so you get these two sort of divergent ideas in the, um, white community about how to respond to this. And this leads to a debate in the Virginia legislature um, in Richmond in January, I guess, through late February, early March of 1832. And, uh, you know, there's a few proposals put forward for a gradual abolition plan. Um, Those are defeated. um, And ultimately what emerges from this intensive debate is Uh, a little bit of funding from the legislature for um, 
colonization, so to take free people and, and move them outside of the state. And um, this is a little bit of toughening of the uh, criminal law. Um, the, the debate itself is, I think, much more important than the, the sort of the, the unfortunate results of, of the debate. Because you've got some people, and these are largely from Western Virginia, what's now part of West Virginia, right? West, Western Virginia, what's West Virginia splits off from, from Virginia during the Civil War. And that's the less, the part of Virginia is fewer enslaved people and is more pro-union, more anti-slavery at the time of the war. And they were more anti-slavery even in the 1830s. So you've got some people who are talking about, hey, you know, this form of human property is immoral and dangerous and it should be terminated. And then you get the people in the sort of, you know, slave owning parts of Virginia like, nah, this is. This is the foundation of society and property and, and slavery mixed together, and they're the sort of foundation. They're the social fabric, um, and uh, anything that tends to destroy that will be the destruction of Virginia society. So you get this intense debate, and then what to me is the most interesting part of this is there's a young history professor at William & Mary named Thomas Dew who then after the debate – summarizes it and writes you know, basically a, a pro-slavery pamphlet, short book, talking about how it is impractical to end slavery. Virginia couldn't do without the economic benefits of slavery. Virginia um, economy couldn't survive. Virginia couldn't pay to transport the formerly enslaved people out of the state. Um, and he says... Um, and it sort of engages anti-slavery arguments here about the practicality of emancipation as well as the morality of it. And, you know, it begins to sort of build out the argument about how important slavery is, um, not just to the white community, but um, makes arguments about how important slavery is. It uh, helps to elevate the savage enslaved people and other nonsense like that. But that's the... So do then do's pamphlet review of the debates in the Virginia legislature becomes a foundational text. And he is able to use this to become president at William and Mary and people refer to do's debates or do's pamphlet on slavery down to the time of the civil war. It, it, it is, um, marks the difficulty of having anti-slavery arguments be take being taken seriously after nat turner when I mean, people that you know refer to say like boy this establishes that you know slavery is economically vital to the south emancipation is impractical um and then he argues that you know throughout human history slavery and civilization have gone together and these become sort of the mantras of the pro-slavery arguments down to the war. Slavery and civilization, though in our mind, are different. They're separate. They're distinct. In his mind and that of many of his followers, slavery and civilization go together. Um, and that's, it's sort of, Thomas Dew, in my mind, sets the, the sort of the framework for everybody who follows. And then they build this out, and there's lots of nuance, but that's the, you know, 1832, we've got the 
um, the framework just gets dragged down and amplified until the war. Could you discuss some of the ideas circulating through Southern universities in the 1840s and 1850s? For, for sure, thanks. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, absolutely. So we have, you know, Dew and some of his contemporaries. There's this guy, um, um, Nathaniel Beverly Tucker, who's, who's also a professor at William & Mary. He teaches law, you know, are, are making these kinds of arguments about slavery and civilization, slavery and property, slavery and the impracticality of um, emancipation. And one of the arguments that they make in the 1830s um, is that slavery is good for white people because it sort of makes all white people equal and it gives a sort of it unifies them. In the 1840s, those arguments about the virtues of slavery for the slave owning class continue to be made. Uh, though I think they they focus more on economics rather than that sort of political theory argument that I that I'd say emerges from Tucker and um, and Dew, but in the 1840s and 1850s they also have another argument that they build out in much greater amplitude. There are two pieces of it. One is that slavery is good for the enslaved people because they are brought from barbarity into civilization. And I think that is an argument that shows how much the pro-slavery forces are responding to the advance of the anti-slavery forces. Um, Sarah Roth, who's a history professor up at, up at Widener University, it came out, I don't know, a year or two ago with a really terrific book on um, uh, gender and race in antebellum popular culture. And she shows how the sort of anti-slavery forces were humanizing, were enslaved people, depicting them as, you know, uh, virtuous citizens in waiting. And where the picture had once been that enslaved people were savages, they were Nat Turner waiting to kill the in, their enslavers, the anti-slavery forces shifted the focus to the enslaved person as humble citizen in waiting. And that, I think, is, she argues, I think she's right, is important in sort of shifting the grounds and um, advancing the cause of anti-slavery. The, the pro-slavery people then need to have a response to this, right? They need to be able to say, well, we're not keeping the enslaved people in slavery because they're savage. We are helping them on the road to civilization. And so you see in the 1840s and big time in the 1850s a shift from pro-slavery thought as the sort of virtues or political theory of white people to this is good for the enslaved. Obviously, we recognize that as complete hokum, and it wasn't even all that effective, I think, in that time period. But that is suggestive of the sort of shift that's taking place. There's this constant argument about the virtues of slavery economically, for the slave-owning class, and then there's this shift from, we used, used the slave-owning class used to say this is good for white people, and that continues, you still see threads of those arguments, but also what gets built out big time is the argument that slavery is good for the enslaved person. That's one of the shifts that you see. I said there were two. The other shift that we see 
is the slave-owning class then moves from the argument, the acceptance of Jefferson's argument that all people are born equal and the sort of Enlightenment-era idea that slavery is inconsistent with natural law. They move from that idea to the idea that slavery is actually consistent with natural law. And they develop that argument in a number of ways. Part of it is they turn to works like Thomas Dew's review of the debates in the Virginia legislature that talk about how slavery is ubiquitous or nearly ubiquitous in human history. They turn to the pseudoscientific studies of people like Samuel George Morton, who was a medical professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and Josiah Knott, who was a medical professor down at what became the, the University of Alabama Medical School, and archaeologists who were studying things like Egyptian tomb inscriptions, and they suggest that the sub-Saharan Africans were enslaved by Caucasians in the era when the you know Egyptian pyramids were being built. I don't know the truth of any of that. But that's the argument that people are advancing. It's an argument about human history, and then it's an argument about um, sort of, again, pseudoscientific senses of differences in intelligence and ability to do physical labor between Africans and Caucasians. They're building all of these, they're wrapping, they're duct taping all of those arguments together. And then what emerges from that is the, the idea that flips Jefferson's declaration on its head and says, slavery is not inconsistent with natural law. It is, in fact, consistent with natural law. And there's this guy, uh, James Holcomb, who's, who's a law professor at the University of Virginia, who's maybe most famously associated with this, but a lot of other people are making those kinds of arguments. So you get this sort of shift um, in the 1840s and 1850s where you have Southern academics continuing to emphasize the economic importance of slavery, but then they start talking about how slavery is good for the enslaved, and they're also talking about how slavery is consistent with natural law. And I think what's I don't need to get too uh, too much ahead of the the argument. I, I know we're going to be sort of unfolding the book as we go along, but but I think what becomes important is that those arguments are widely diffused in Southern culture, and when they see the election of Lincoln, they're so convinced that slavery is the foundation. Slavery and property is the foundation of their society. Society couldn't exist without it. Um that they then, um, and they see Lincoln as, I think, an even bigger threat to slavery than maybe he actually is, um, that they, you know, take action to leave the Union to try and preserve slavery. What do literary and graduation addresses given by politicians, lawyers, and judges reveal about the interaction of schools with other parts of Southern elite culture? Yeah, thanks for asking. It's a, that's a real that's a really perceptive question. So, part of what's going on and what I study is the development of these pro-slavery ideas exclusively within the academy. Right? So you get all these sort of professors at at you know schools we know well, um, from William and Mary to University of Virginia to Randolph Macon College, um, 
to you know, University of Georgia, University of Alabama, Ole Miss, um, all the sort of the, the, the typical schools and, and, and a lot of other ones that, that um, are Emory, um, other places that are, that are um, you know, the typical places and then, and then schools also that, that have since subsequently closed or dramatically changed. Um, and um, so, so you see this, this academic development of a pro-slavery literature. But what to me is really super interesting is that academic literature also interacts with politicians. And one of the ways that this, the interaction takes place is sometimes politicians, lawyers, judges, are reading that literature and you know reading this in the periodical southern periodical literature sometimes they're reading books um this one called types of mankind um which is published in the 1850s is a really famous one that injects this sort of pseudoscientific absurd racism into the into southern um uh political and, and legal discussions but one of the ways that this interaction also takes place is by having um, visiting dignitaries come and lecture at Southern colleges. A lot of times that takes place through, um, uh, you know, at graduation or, 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 or commencement of the year, beginning of the year speeches. Sometimes these will be like July 4th, um, orations. And you have very, very famous people. Je- Jefferson Davis is the one I like to use. Um, as, as the best example of this gives a, gives an address at Ole Miss in the early 1850s. You know, John Archibald Campbell, who's a very famous, um, member of the U.S. Supreme Court. He's maybe even more zealously pro-slavery than Chief Justice Taney and Dred Scott, if such a thing can be imagined. Um, and it couldn't until I read Campbell and, um, concurrence in Dred Scott. Um, but, but so Campbell, who's on the U.S. Supreme Court, is writing some of these, you know, sort of pro-slavery um, articles. He talks about slavery in Rome and Greece. And then he comes to University of Georgia and also the University of Alabama and speaks right on the eve of, of, of civil war within the last couple of years, 1858, 1859. And Campbell um, is, you know, he's on this U.S. Supreme Court at this point, but he's talking about the possibility of, of a separate southern nation. So I think what's interesting and important about this is you can see from these graduation addresses and, and addresses to literary societies how Southern students and academics interact with um, Southern dignitaries, lawyers, judges, politicians. And you see the sort of the ideas, you know, going both ways. We now think of graduation addresses as extremely boring and and uninspiring probably in a lot of ways and you want to just get through them as quickly as possible so everybody can get their degrees and spend time with their family but you sort of in this era they they lasted a long time and they celebrate schools as places of development of pro-slavery thought and of inoculation of students from northern anti-slavery ideas and they are sites for dissemination of those ideas could you discuss the debate undertaken in a series of letters between Brown University President Francis Wayland and Richard Fuller? Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Thanks for asking about that. So Wayland is a really central figure. Um, and when he was president of Brown, he's a Baptist minister. He's president of Brown University. I think he's president from, 
18 early 1830s through I think the late 1850s. I mean, he's there for a long. He's sort of parks himself there for a long time, and I think one of the important stories that emerged from Brown University's investigation into its connections to slavery um, was a surprising story, which is though Brown was funded by um, slave traders and early on by profits made off the slave trade early on, it actually became um, a hotbed of anti-slavery thought. And, you know, there's a, a lot that has been said and, and, and probably more that should be said about Wayland. You know, he could maybe he could have been more anti-slavery, um, but he was heavily criticized among in many circles for his anti-slavery advocacy. And maybe he came to it more slowly than he should have. There's a Wayland's a super interesting person. From my perspective, what's one of the things that's interesting about this is he writes a textbook in moral philosophy which is a sort of capstone course that's taught, I think, at every college, uh, every college that I'm familiar with um, by the time of, before the Civil War. And his textbook was used at many, many schools north and south, and it was anti-slavery. By the time, at one point, I think at Ole Miss, they're using the textbook, but then they rip out the pages where he's talking about, where he's criticizing slavery, or they state people them together or something, paste them together, so sew them together so the students can't read them. There's some really interesting stories about sort of how Southern schools reacted to Wayland's um, anti-slavery ideas. But one of the things that, that, that he does is he engages in a series of debates with um, his friends and fellow Baptist ministers in Southern um, states. He, there's an exchange that I don't think was ever published, but that he has with Basil Manley, who's an important pro-slavery Baptist minister at the University of Alabama. We'll, we'll, we'll maybe have a chance to chat about Basil Manley later on in, in this podcast. And, um, and then he also engages, uh, this man, Richard Fuller, who is a, one of the leading Baptist ministers in South Carolina, in the nation, really, but he's, has a, has a pulpit in, um, I guess it's Charleston. And um, they have this extended debate um, over, you know, is the Bible anti-slavery? Should we interpret the Bible as sort of having changing standards of morality? Fuller says, you know, sort of slavery is recognized um, in the Bible, and that is, I think, settles it largely for him. And uh, Fuller has more of a sense of progressive maybe revelation um, that sort of over time um, we learn more and change our standards of, of morality. So it's a really interesting exchange that um, helps us understand some of the points of conflict between northern and southern anti-slavery, uh, nor northern anti-slavery and southern pro-slavery religious leaders. Um, and they're they're trying to, I think, understand one another and trying to have a clash um, and trying to, you know, bring people into orbit around their rather divergent ideas. Um, and, of course, this is the era when the Baptist church splits um, largely over the issue of slavery. Um, Wayland is a, is, a, is a figure I think we should hear more about than we do. Um, and he's a real sort of personal hero of mine. He's just somebody who, in an era when a lot of the wealthy and well-educated were pro-slavery, 
um, Waylon stuck his neck out um, to oppose slavery. And again, you know, there's various ways we can view him, and maybe he should have done more. Uh, maybe he came to this view too slowly of anti-slavery. But, you know, I mean, the reason I have so much respect for him is because he was trying to do something when so many other people weren't doing anything. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson has a, has a quote that I, I, I love and could have used in every single chapter, um, except I didn't want to wear out its welcome, that um, when he, you, know, you look around and you see the courts, the universities, and the pulpits, and the um, uh, halls of legislatures are filled with, um, are aligned against the interests of the slave. And uh, Wayland is one of the people who was uh, not aligned against the interests of the slave. Now would you discuss the trial the University of Mississippi's Board of Trustees conducted of Chancellor F.A.P. Barnard? I'd love to. I'd love to. So this is one of the, um, I think, most interesting and under-discussed stories about slavery and university in this time. And let me just back up a little bit. So, so everybody is familiar with Barnard because Barnard College, right, Distinguished Women's College in, in, in New York City, that's part of Columbia University, is named after him. He was after the Civil War, I guess maybe even during the end of the Civil War and certainly after the Civil War, Barnard was president of Columbia. He was a big advocate of women's education. And so, he was um, instrumental in getting Barnard College, what's now known as Barnard College, going. I think he, he maybe had passed on right as right as Columbia was starting this this separate college for for women. But before the war, he and he's a he's a New Englander. I think he grew up in Connecticut, went to Yale. Um, but before the war, he was a, a science professor um, first at the University of Alabama and then at um, and then he was president or chancellor at Ole Miss. And um, while he was in Alabama, he was at first criticized for being northern and sort of soft on the issue of slavery. And he gave a, a, a July 4th address in, in Tuscaloosa, which is where the University of Alabama is located, talking about the virtues of union and arguing for you know, st- strong union, and it's like, hey, don't, don't, don't um, oppose the institution. Uh, d- d- don't, s- don't support secession. So he's a strong unionist. He was also, though, a part of that speech was he said, you know, I'm, I'm strong on on slavery. I support the institution of slavery. He's a slave owner. One of the real tragedies among the many that we learn about slavery, of course, is the sexual exploitation of enslaved people, women largely. And while Barnard was on the University of Alabama campus, and we don't know a lot about this story, um, it it appears that um, some of his enslaved women were sexually assaulted by students at the University of Alabama. We know very, very little about that. Almost everything that we know, I think maybe everything we know about that, that this at the University of Alabama comes from a few lines in the diary of this president, Basil Manley, of the president of the University of Alabama. 
his diaries have preserved all sorts of stuff about um, life of enslaved people, as well as the running of the campus. Um, and so he alludes to this in his diary that, that students are um, assaulting some of Barnard's slaves. I don't know a whole lot more about that. One thing that we need to be careful about here is that Barnard and Basil Manley didn't get along at all, and so you know you need to filter um, through um, anything about Barnard needs to be filtered through the lens that those two didn't get along. Part of the story of them not getting along relates to the what the curriculum should look like. Should it be more sort of science, engineering, practical based, or should it be more of a classical curriculum? This was a division that that was going on at a lot of schools at this time. Anyway, Barnard leaves to become, I guess it's Chancellor at Ole Miss. And um, shortly before the war, I think this is 1858, he and his wife are out of town, and they come back, and again, one of his slaves has been assaulted by a student, and the slave tells his wife this story, and then he hears this story from his wife, and then he kicks the student out of school for having assaulted his slave. And the the student gets very angry about this. He starts complaining, Barnard took the testimony of a slave against me, and as a result of this, Barnard, he causes problems for, for Barnard with the Board of Trustees and other people. And so the Board of Trustees, I think this is really at Barnard's instigation, have a hearing um, that's extensive, a trial, they talk about it as, to investigate whether Barnard behaved inappropriately. And so I think in some ways Barnard wanted this to sort of vindicate him, but um, the important piece of this is that you know the the trustees end up tr having a trial of Barnard, and you know they have this question: is, was he in, inappropriately taking the testimony of a of a of a slave against a a, a white person? And um, though in fact it does very much seem like that's what he's doing, they sort of you know the the way the the trustees look at this, you know, they investigate Barnard and say, well, he's uh, you know. Uh, solid on the issue of slavery as any man of the South, I think is what one trustee says. And then, you know, they say, well, this is not so much taking the testimony. It's, you know, sort of understanding from his wife what had happened and then sort of looking, adding together other physical um, injuries, sort of inspection of the enslaved woman and seeing that she was injured and then sort of piecing this together through some other things. And so, he is, the trustees ultimately support him on this, um, but he, um, I think it's that trial and that, it's, it's printed as a pamphlet, um, which suggests how sort of important this was. Um, it testifies to how strong the pro-slavery culture was that even when you're dealing with some non-judicial proceeding, um, right, they're taking the, using the framework of law to sort of evaluate what this university president was doing. So it's, it's testimony to the power of pro-slavery ideas, and I think it's also testimony to the sort of, the format, the framing of, of trials, 
in in governing the rest of American life. Turns out, um, once the war begins, Barnard um, head, heads for the north. Um, maybe this is partly he has a very good sense of how the war is going to end and also wants to be, um, you know, in a society um, that is you know, not not based on the institution of slavery. And then he's ends up as um, crosses the union lines, does some work for the, the war department, ends up as, as president at, at Columbia in, in the aftermath of all of this. Though this book is largely about pro-slavery ideas, and occasionally I'll deal with some Southerners who have anti-slavery ideas, and therefore, you know, is largely about intellectual history. Um, this episode with Barnard is is one of the pieces of the sort of social history um, that that hasn't of, of slavery in universities that, that I have you know have something to say about and has not been I think yet fully incorporated into the um, the discussion right we hear so much about um, the horrors of slavery and we often I think don't fully think about them as the horrors of slavery on the, the college campus. But this is, it's a really harrowing episode or series of episodes or sense of, of um, these, what these, what life was like for enslaved people um, on, on college campuses. How did pro-slavery ideas leave the ivory tower and turn into actions in the Senate's debate over the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850? So, so one of the things is, I think a lot of what, what we're seeing with these academic ideas are that they correlate with, sometimes they're drawn from and build out, um, public debate. And sometimes I think they contribute to this sort of public debate. And so I think you can see very much these ideas in the, um, you know, about the centrality of the economy, of slavery to the economy, the centrality of, um, sort of calculations of utility. How important is slavery? And we'll take our sort of sense of, of what should be done from a calculation of utility rather than calculations of humanity. And, and that gets built out big time in the Fugitive Slave Act debate. So you know, so you've got a lot of Southerners saying, you know, we, we need slavery. Um, and they, they also tap into some of these, you know, pseudoscientific ideas about enslaved people are, are designed by biology for to be enslaved. Um, and so you see these ideas that have been nurtured and built out in the academy being um, explored in substantial depth in the in the debates. I'm not sure that I don't I don't want to make the the strong version of the argument that without the academy you wouldn't have had these same debates. I think these things are all growing up sort of together and organically. But I think we can use the the um, pro-slavery um, academics writings to, to get a good sense of what the, the intellectual culture was like. What is jurisprudence of sentiment? How does an analysis of Harriet Beecher Stowe's work help us understand Southern jurists? For sure. So what I think we've got sort of two, two senses of jurisprudence here, right? One is the utilitarian calculations of the pro-slavery um, forces who say, you know, we should have a law that is designed to promote economic growth and um, uh, sort of, you know, they take their their sense of morality from 
considerations of utility. Harry Beecher Stowe and a lot of other anti-slavery advocates critique that, and they say, you know, you shouldn't be just counting costs and benefits. You should be um, looking at the humanity of the enslaved people, and they develop what I like to refer to as a jurisprudence of sentiment. When you say, we don't care what the ben economic benefit of slavery is, we see an extraordinary cost here. And um, so we think jurisprudence should be built around sentiments of humanity. There's one place, so there are two very different jurisprudence um, bases for, for, um, for jurisprudence. I do think there's one place where they may begin to overlap, though I don't think people at the time understood this. So maybe this is sort of me adding something um, that didn't exist, but... I think the pro-slavery forces almost never took into consideration the utility or disutility of slavery for the enslaved. So you need to get this um, famous debate um, um, uh, that John Stuart Mill engages in um, his, his anti-slavery, as as you get in this in this time period. And he he says, well, in debating abolition of slavery in the West Indies. The only thing that was ever taken into consideration seemed to be the profit of the slave owner. And if you look at the um, cost to the slave, you maybe, even under a utilitarian calculation, would have a very different calculus. It's like, this is so horrible for the enslaved that even though there are obvious economic benefits to the slave owner, those are outweighed by the um, cost to the slave. And maybe you asked about about Stowe as well. So 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 Harry Beecher Stowe is one of the people who develops this. She develops she builds this out in like Uncle Tom's Cabin, where she you know sort of critiques the idea that slaves are treated um, uh, that that um, uh, where, where she shows the sort of the, the human cost of slavery and and maybe suggests that's outweighed um, or or not considered at all um, by these the slave owning class. How did abolitionist legal thinker William Goodell's approach differ from Harriet Beecher Stowe or Frederick Douglass's abolitionist approaches? Yeah, that's a really good question. So Goodell writes a book called The American Slave Code in Theory and Practice. And I see him as a sort of early version of what I guess we now call a legal realist. So he's somebody who you know, has a sort of like, what does the slave code look like in theory? If you just sort of read the code, what does that do? It makes it look like, you know, slave owners have complete uncontrolled authority over the body of the slave. Um, and then if you look at it in practice, and sort of his in practice was, you know, he collected lots of Southern newspaper accounts of slavery and, and looked at judicial appellate opinions to show the horror of slavery. And so I think what he was doing was sort of bringing um, these kinds of ideas, you know, that Stowe and Frederick Douglass had sort of developed in popular culture um, about the horror of slavery and putting it really into a legal framework and showing, you know, looking at court opinions and accounts of um, enslaved people being tortured to death. Um, and those sorts of things that suggested 
that the slave code offered very little, if any, protection to enslaved. Um, he is famous for the sort of refrain in that book called, where he says, men may be better than their laws, but they seldom are. And um, so he sort of shows that there's, you know, the law in the book is um, releases owners from liability. Um, it lets them do whatever they want to the enslaved person, people. And um, not only does law in the book permit that, but law in practice um, on the ground the life of the enslaved is one of brutality and, and torture. And so he, um, I think, does some nice work to fill out this anti-slavery critique of this pro-slavery utilitarian arguments about property and economy. Could you talk about Judge Ruffin? Does an analysis of his jurisprudence align with Harriet Beecher Stowe's portrayal of him? Yeah, for sure. Just a little bit of background here for your listeners. Ruffin um, is a North Carolina Supreme Court justice who, in one of his very first opinions when he goes on the North Carolina Supreme Court, it's called State v. Man, issues a decision that um, frees this person named Man, who had rented a slave named Lydia from liability. He was beating her, and she started running away. He takes out a gun and shoots her. And um, he was successfully prosecuted at the trial level for having assaulted the slave. And Ruffin overturns the conviction and says, you know, in the nature of things, um, this has to be so. Uh, the slave owner has to have essentially uncontrolled authority over the body of the slave or the slaves will rebel. They won't they won't be docile workers. And this is an opinion that really is in the view of Stowe and many, many other anti-slavery thinkers cuts to the heart of slavery. The anti-slavery forces turn to State v. Man because it's such a, a critique and exposure of, of the, the sort of ideology of slave law. It, so the, oddly, this opinion by Ruffin, who's pro-slavery, becomes this sort of rallying point for the anti-slavery forces because they say, look, look, this is what slavery is all about. And um, then Stowe builds a character around this person, Ruffin, just Chief Justice Ruffin, in her very obscure 1854 novel called Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp. And so she's following up on the success of, of Uncle Tom's Cabin with another book that tries to say, well, but Everybody got done reading Uncle Tom's Cabin and they felt sympathy for the slave, but nobody ever did anything. Why? And so what she explains in, in Dread A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp is how powerful the forces opposing change are. And she builds this character around Ruffin. And she says, well, Ruffin was the fictional character in, in Dread, um, built around Ruffin is anti-slavery and private. He says, hey, boy, I, Boy, I hate the institution of slavery. But because the law requires me to um, release the slave owner or slave possessor from liability, I'm going to do that. So he, even though in private he's anti-slavery, he issues a pro-slavery decision. And that's sort of Ruffin's fictional build-out of, of this Ruffin character. There's no evidence that um, 
that Ruffin was anti-slavery. In fact, my, my colleague uh, um, Eric Eric, Eric uh, Muller has written a phenomenal article that goes back. You know, he spent enormous amount of time in Ruffin's personal papers um, that are housed here here in Chapel Hill, and you know, basically concludes Ruffin um, was uh, zealously pro-slavery. He records you know he's beating slaves and selling slaves who become um, disobedient of him and is Eric's article, North Carolina Law Review 2009, is really, really a great source for this. It's the definitive word on, on Ruffin. So Ruffin is in person and, uh, pro-slavery, um, even though in this opinion he expresses, he says, well, you know, people outside of the, the South won't understand this opinion or something. It seems to hedge. Um, but then, you know, ultimately the, the, his, his conclusion is slave owners can have uncontrolled authority over the body of the slaves. So, um, so that's, uh, that's how rough, that's how Stowe portrays him. She turns him to her own purposes, even as she's trying to explain why the power of economy and law are so strong. And the uh, final upshot then for Stowe is there can be little hope for from the great institutions in society, churches, Congress, courts, don't look for anti-slavery action from them. Could you give some examples of ways a treatise writer in Georgia blended pro-slavery ideas, moral philosophy, and ideas about economics in their writings? For sure. So what the, the chapter that I am most um, enamored of in University Court and Slave is the one that deals with Thomas Cobb, who was a l- j- lawyer in Georgia. He was the co-founder of the Lumpkin Law School, which is now the University of Georgia, became the University of Georgia's law school. And he's the um, son-in-law of, of Chief Justice Lumpkin of the Georgia Supreme Court. And he writes, Cobb writes a treatise called The Inquiry into the Law of Negro Slavery that is both historical and legal. And Cobb, I like to think, this you know, it's a treatise that runs, I don't know, 600 pages. It's enormous. It's published in the 1850, late 1850s. I like to think of it as the capstone of pro-slavery legal thought. Um, and you know, it's it's also referred to as like Wikipedia of pro-slavery thought. I mean, everything's in there. Every vicious um, pro-slavery argument. For, you know, this is slavery's nearly ubiquitous in human history. You know, he's one of these people who's turning to like the Egyptian slave uh, Egyptian tomb inscriptions to show that like what appear what he says. And I'm not sure of the historical action of this appears to be sub-Saharan Africans being led in slavery by Caucasians and he drags this down to, you know, the sort of draws on the pseudoscientific studies about difference in brain capacity between um, Africans and Caucasians. I mean, it's like every single argument that supports slavery is in that in, is in Cobb's inquiry into the law of Negro slavery in one form or another. And he's one of these people who builds out the argument about how important slavery is to human society and therefore far from being inconsistent with natural law it's actually consistent and that means that wherever the slave owner takes his slave property 
a bubble of slave law moves with him so that you know slavery should be a national institution not a not a local institution confined to the south i mean it, everything's in there and um he is heavily cited by southern jurists they love his arguments um they build this out it's published his treatise is published just after dred scott and so this gets picked up a lot by southern courts that are again sort of you know expanding um powers of owners over slaves and um arguing that um slaves brought into free territory are not freed that's a flip from sort of what the law had been be- before dred scott in many jurisdictions and um and then for me what is most interesting is cobb then shows up in um macon in uh, November, December of 1860, when there's discussion about what should be done about the election of Lincoln and gives a viciously um, a pro-slavery and, and secessionist argument that's helpful in, in sort of pushing um, the state towards secession. And then um, he takes to the battlefield. He's a, he's a true believer um, and so he moves from a sort of academic lawyer to a soldier, and he rises through the ranks very quickly. He ends up as a general, and he's killed on the battlefield at Fredericksburg. Um, he's one of the few Confederates who, who dies at Fredericksburg. It's really a, a, a stunning victory for the South. But um, Cobb is out there, and he's uh, he dies on the battlefield. So, I mean, he's a person who ties together all of the themes of the book, right? He's he's a he's an academic who's making these arguments through his writing, and then he reaches out from his cloistered sort of academic position to the uh, Georgia legislature, and then that isn't enough for him either. He goes he he takes to the battlefield, and so he's this engaged activist scholar, um, all wrapped up into one. And he's he's in, in some many ways the sort of the center of focus of, of this book because he brings together pro-slavery ideas and then he he helps to sort of promulgate those ideas and then he he tries to implement them in every way possible. The what to me is sort of most interesting about all of this is how bad these people are as politicians, right? So Cobb, Ruffin, uh, this guy James Holcomb, all of these people who are uh, Jefferson Davis. I mean, this is the, the Southern intellectual history is, is littered with these folks who do everything they can to promote secession and separate union, separate Southern nation in order to preserve slavery. And, um, irony of ironies, <laughs> they are incredibly poor politicians because, you know, what they did to push the South towards, civil war and secession ends up again irony of irony terminating slavery much sooner than it would have otherwise right if the, if the south hadn't precipitously opted for secession does anybody think slavery would have ended in 1865 i don't know anybody who thinks that slavery probably would have gone on for decades i suppose eventually it would have been ended early 20th century god knows when by pushing for war and secession these folks completely unintentionally brought about 
the termination of slavery. And you know, I always like to, when I'm talking about these things, I, you put together a list of who's most responsible for the end of slavery. Well, Lincoln, Grant, Sherman, Douglas, Stowe, thousands of soldiers whose names we'll never know, um, who, you know, took to the battlefield at, Fre- at um, Gettysburg and other places. But pretty high up on that list are <laughs> Ruffin, Cobb, Jefferson Davis, um, and other is, is Holcomb, all these other people who pushed for war, and uh, as happens so, so frequently with war, it's counterproductive. Sometimes it's necessary. World War II needed to be, you know, needed to defeat Nazism. War was absolutely necessary. But a lot of times you end up through violence with exactly the opposite result of, of what the people who start the violence intend. What do the ways enslaved people sought freedom through wills and through travel to free states reveal about support for slavery? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great question. It's, it's a great question. So, so one of, some of the sources I'm interested in here are largely this is a book, right, about, about the pro-slavery, um, about pro-slavery thinkers. So, you know, I'm, I'm part of the problem, I guess, when people complain about those in the academy who study the dead, white, slave-owning men. I'm the problem, I suppose. Um, but part of what I'm interested in here are ways in which um, enslaved people are important in this story. Right? So you've got people like Nat Turner who um, are I- I- important actors, and there's a reaction to them in all sorts of in the academy, but also in the legislature and also out in the, in the streets. And some of the people I'm interested in are people like Dred Scott, who sued for his freedom um, and ended up losing in the Supreme Court, but but calling the slave system to account in some ways. And also, some of the actors I'm interested in here are the slave owners who tried to free people who often were their family members, so free them via will. And then, particularly as we got close to the Civil War, um, the southern states and particularly southern courts routinely rejected claims that um, by enslaved people that their fathers had freed them via will or their previous owners had freed them via will. Um, and so one of the things that I think we see is that particularly in the 1850s, the state courts were skeptical and, and, and tightened down on claims to free, on attempts to free slaves, even your family members. So while we usually think that you know, the slave-owning men uh, of the Old South had great discretion in what they could do with their property. And in fact, Ruffin tells us in State v. Man, you can, you can use uncontrolled authority over the body of the slave. What the states in the 1850s were saying is, you can torture your slaves, but you can't free them, because that would tend to undermine the institution of slavery. And so they tightened down on those, you know, outright emancipations. They also tightened down on what was called quasi-freedom or quasi-slavery, where some people, often they were Quakers, but could be anybody, 
um, put slaves in trust, and they'd you know put them in trust to somebody who would let them then uh, you know work on their own account, do whatever they wanted. And when things like that happened, oftentimes um, courts would intervene and take the 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 enslaved people away from those trustees and give them to family members who would put them back into regular slavery. So courts were policing very vigilantly uh, the boundaries of slavery. And when, you know, this is a lesson that emerged in the wake of Nat Turner, and it's a lesson we see a lot in the 1850s, when when the, the state came, the state would come in or courts would come in to make sure that slave owners were treating enslaved people as slaves and not letting them go free or, you know, have a nominal owner but, but be able to do whatever they want to. What role did academics and their arguments play in the discussion of secession? That, thanks, for, thanks for asking because I think that's a, it's, it's one way that the, um, the, the, to tie this all together. So, so there's a couple of, of ways I see this. So one thing that these academics did was they wrote treatises and articles and pamphlets that and taught many um, students the importance and moral in their minds correctness of slavery and the economic importance of slavery. So they told slave owners that what they were doing was right and correct. And I think those ideas um, mixed then with um, arguments that were in popular in public, but also among academics about how um, property and slavery were both central to Southern society and anything that tended to decrease either property or slavery um, would undermine Southern society, Would was a threat to um, the very basis of Southern culture. And in many instances, if this if the threat came from a northern state, that was something that violated the Constitution. So they had arguments about economy and law and culture, all of which supported the institution of slavery. Those were arguments that academics helped to promote and, and helped to build and helped to promote. That's the sort of the highest level of generality. Then at a much more specific level, a number of the people who were making the argument that, that, you know, Lincoln's election was a violation of the Constitution, that the South needed to secede, that this was, that Lincoln's election would be the destruction of, of Southern, um, culture and society, Southern law, Southern property were themselves academics. So we have this guy, Thomas Cobb, who we spent some time talking about, is a zealously pro-slavery lawyer and, and treatise writer from Georgia. James Holcomb, who's a zealously pro-slavery um, law professor at the University of Virginia, who's going around talking about how slavery is mandated by natural law. Um, they both uh, uh, speak to their respective state legislatures. You've got... Um, um, uh, religious leaders who are also, um, academics, uh, like, uh, uh, James, uh, uh, Thornwell, James Henley Thornwell, who's a professor 
it, for a while at what at South Carolina College, what becomes the University of South Carolina, ultimately at the Presbyterian Seminary in in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, writes a couple of of pamphlets that are very important in sort of pushing the South towards secession. Um, Benjamin Palmer, another sort of religious leader, all of these sorts of these academics who are advocating in public and in um, the halls of legislatures, pushing towards secession. And so, you know, my argument is the academics help to develop these arguments, but also the arguments that we can we can turn to the academics to help understand the um, amplitude with which Southerners approached the election of Lincoln and said to themselves, we have to secede in order to preserve slavery, and we need to preserve slavery because that's sort of the foundation of Southern society. And I think we're only recently, um, again, coming to this understanding of just how central slavery was to not just Southern, but Northern society too, right? And the, the folks who, who you know, Seth Rockman at, at Brown and um, Sven Beckert up at Harvard and other people who are working on this sort of capitalism and slavery um, um, arguments um, and how slavery is sort of central to, to American uh, capitalism, North as well as South. Um, I think the, all of this is sort of a piece um, of the, um, of our realization of how important slavery was um, to Southern culture and to the United States. In what ways does your work demonstrate that capitalism led to the growth of pro-slavery sentiment in the South? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so thanks. Thanks for asking. I mean, that's, it's sort of, it's a piece of, of this stuff I was, I was just su suggesting, right, that, that um, there's it's all this literature in, in recent years that historians and economic historians and, and a few economists are also emphasizing is that that how central slavery was to um, economic growth. And while I'm, uh, I do very little, um, there's very little quantitative work in, in university court and slave. It's the, a lot of what I have are sort of the um, literary or qualitative analogs this where you've got judges talking about um, how we need to develop rules that, you know, limit tort liability so that, um, uh, slave owners aren't liable for the torts of their slaves, um, and you know, designing rules that promote slavery and, um, in their mind, promote economic growth. So I think I think I think University Court and Slave is you know a sort of adjunct to that literature that's um, that we see so much of now on on slavery and capitalism. It suggests that you know judges are thinking in economic terms and they're building out common law rules to promote economic growth and they're promoting slavery at the same time, right? They, they see slavery and corporations are twin pillars of, um, 19th century, um, capitalism and the market and economic growth. These things all go together. They're not inconsistent. Um, their slavery is part of the sort of the economic growth of the nation. And, and that's what my, my subjects, my academics, my lawyers, my politicians, my, my judges are all saying. Would you please discuss the interplay between law and culture your book helps demonstrate? Judges were influenced by pro-slavery ideas circulating in Southern culture and also helped establish that culture. 
Uh, yeah, those are some great questions. Basically, what I'm what I'm trying to do is show um, the ways in which you have these sorts of cultural migrations, right? The increasing amplitude of pro-slavery thought and the grounds how it shifts from sort of emphasizing the virtues of slavery for political theory of white people to the sort of economic benefits to the slave-owning class, and then the supposed laughable benefits for the enslaved. Um, so, you know, you can sort of trace those ideas out, and then you can hold them up against similar ideas, right? You can correlate them, to use a social science term. You can correlate those cultural ideas to what judges are saying. And one of the cool things for me is to see when, you know, judges are making arguments that are very similar to the arguments that we're seeing in the academic literature and in the political sort of on the halls of Congress. Sometimes you can see this quite directly. For instance, um, there's a, uh, a judicial opinion from the mid-1830s in, South Carol in, in, in North Carolina that um, keys into some of the obscure literature that Thomas Dew is citing in his pamphlet. And it looks very much as though, you know, when the courts are, court is talking about how, like, we need to keep the shackles fastened on the enslaved people or there will be rebellion. It looks like where they're taking that from is Thomas Dew's argument. So you can see some things where, they, you know, these are cultural ideas are sort of moving um, and they're, the ideas outside of the judiciary, I think, are moving in consonance, in correlation with the ideas inside the judiciary. Um, you can see, and so you can trace, and this is, is one of the things that I set out in life to do, was to understand how um, you know changing ideas in culture relate to changing ideas in the judiciary. Sometimes it's quite obvious how this happens, right? The um, you have a switch in political parties who are appointing judges to the U.S. Supreme Court, and then they begin to appoint. This happens in, in you know under Roosevelt. Um, you begin to add people to the U.S. Supreme Court who are sympathetic to ideas of racial equality. Um, and so the, the judges are, are, you know, picked from people who can hear certain arguments. And I think that certainly happened, um, in the, in the old South in the years, in the South in the years leading to civil war, where you had the judges are drawn from the slave owning class and their loyalties are to the slave owning class and what they're, echoing and what they uh, believe themselves are these ideas about um, white supremacy, racial hierarchy, centrality of economics to slavery, the religious support for, for the institution of slavery. Um, all of, all of those things, I think, um, working in one direction, which is to have a law that supports the institution of slavery, and that is, you know, reflecting the values of the dominant culture. To conclude, I'd love to know what you're working on now. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks for keeping my head above water. Uh, look, is is the honest is the honest answer. But um, I've got a couple of projects. I'm, I'm this semester. I'm I'm finishing up a case book that I'm 
working on with a couple of friends um, in Trust and Estates. I'm very excited about it. It's uh, going to be called Experiencing Trust and Estates. It'll be out in the spring. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of documents. And we try and sort of have the, the lessons focused on, um, you know, sort of issues of professional responsibility and drafting and client counseling and litigation on, um, you know, clients of sort of low to medium income is below the, the cutoff for the, um, uh, below the, the federal estate, um, tax. Um, and so it's, you know, it's trying to be focused on, I think, what a lot of my students are going to end up doing. And, um, so I'm teaching the, the rough draft of that right now. So that's, that's, um, you know, to rushing to try and finish that up by the end of, of the semester. Really excited. That's a lot of fun. Um, it doesn't really relate to, to legal history, but I'm very excited about that project. And then, um, I've got a couple of, of smaller, pieces. I'm working with a with a, a newer scholar, um, Autumn Barrett, who's a, a PhD in anthropology. And we're working on, um, she works on sort of monuments and um, both in the United States and Brazil and their sort of meaning. And so we're, we're doing something on the Washington Monument in Richmond, Virginia, the Washington Equine Statue, which ends up being on the seal of the, of the Confederacy. And uh, some other people have written on that, but we're we're sort of interested in, in what that's gonna, um, what that says, um, about, you know, Washington as perceived slave owner, but then there's this struggle as, as it's being put up, as the monument's being put up. Other people are trying to portray Washington as states writer, other, some are trying to portray him as nationalist, some are trying pro-slavery. It's a really interesting sort of how one person can be used you know, from multiple, there can be multiple interpretations and I'm very excited about that project. We're hoping to roll it out by um, Washington's birthday, 2017. We'll see, maybe we'll get there and, um, working on some other stuff, um, on, uh, there's a pro-slavery treatise written by a, a lawyer that, um, has, it was never published. It was written in the mid 1850s. And again, is sort of further to these arguments about, how economy and pseudoscience of, of racial hierarchy gets gets you know blended together with with ideas of slavery. Um, so I'm excited about that project. But the next big book project, which I, I, I hope will see the light of day sooner than University Court and Slave, is on African American intellectuals in the early 20th century and their idea of equality and how those ideas, um, you know, the, the what the catalog of of um of dreams of equality look like for african-american intellectuals and i'm trying to populate that not just with the famous people like du bois and charles hamilton houston um but with you know obscure newspaper editors and people we've never heard of um or have forgotten about and then the final piece of that again is sort of like university court and slave but it's the flip side how do those ideas migrate into the um into the supreme court um, and so it's the, the black origins of Brown, um, is, is, is that book. I, I, I hope it'll be done sometime soon. Those sound like great projects and it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank, thanks for having me. Those are as always, um, really great questions. Had a great time. Thanks for, um, indulging, um, all this stuff. There's, uh, it, it's exciting to me how much great work is being done in legal history and particularly in in slavery um and 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 race more generally it's astonishing to me how much more sophisticated the work is um 
every year um, from from you know what what I was reading when I first started off Lotus many years ago in the 1980s. Uh, so really, now's a great time um, to to be working in legal history. There's just so much, so many interesting, exciting things, and it's always relevant, right? Black Lives Matter and the sort of struggle for racial equality is deeply connected to these sorts of studies of of history.